We are, we're going to turn to the third vision of Revelation now. And what I will try and do, because I th- it's going to sort of depend on arrival time of our, of our special guests. Um, but what I'm planning to do is to spend the first half of this session going through uh, chapters 17 to 19 and then to basically have a, an extended sort of conversation with him on the stage. Uh, so we'll chat about Revelation for the rest of this session. That's what I'm hoping, but if he's delayed, then that won't happen. So we'll have to just keep tabs on that as we go. But if you want to turn, I'm sure you already are, if you want to turn to Revelation 17, and what I think I'll do is at this point to read Revelation 17 through to 19, 19 verse 10, because that's the major section on Babylon before we get the rider on the white horse returning. So Revelation 17, 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names haven't been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other hasn't yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth. But it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for an hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, unclean bird, unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearl, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, articles of ivory, articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose traders on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on the earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let's rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you mustn't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's a long text. I think one way of thinking about the development of the eschatology of Revelation at the end, as we see the book sort of accelerating towards a climax, is to think about the eschatology of Revelation as recapitulating the eschatology of Ezekiel. Um, And to see that the pattern pattern set up for us in Ezekiel is really echoed and tweaked, but basically followed by John. So if you go through the the eschatological framework of Ezekiel, which of course most of us know inside out, I'm sure. Um, Ezekiel is not a book with with which most of us are that familiar, I assume. Um, It's a a difficult book in many ways. Um, But it's 
in Ezekiel, you find the sort of many of the same elements, and they form a sort of storyline. You get the overthrow of the harlot, and again, those very, very lurid, grotesque, bestial passages in Ezekiel, which are among the, you know, the fiariest prophetic preaching in the whole Bible. Um, you get the lament for the fallen city, and in fact, you get obviously a number of woes of the nations, but this sort of lengthy lament for the fallen city, uh, which obviously in that, in that context is uh, Tyre. Um, then you get the Valley of Dry Bones, you know, which it comes significantly later, but the Valley of Dry Bones vision, of course, is a resurrection vision. It's a, it's a vision of Israel coming to life again after they've been dead. They look like they're dead, and then prophetically, God brings life to the bones and causes them to rise from the dead. Then you get the Battle of Gog and Magog straight after that. Then you get the birds gorging on the corpses at the end of the battle. And then from there, you go to a very high mountain, and you get the measurement of the city and the temple. And, that, of course, that actually then runs on for a long time through the Ezekiel 40s until the very end in chapter 48. Well, Revelation basically follows the same structure with a couple of minor tweaks, which I don't think are that significant. Um, there is the overthrow of the harlot. There is a lament for a fallen city, which we've just read, those two texts. There is then the first resurrection, which, of course, this is the payoff of doing it this way, is I think that the first resurrection in the, in the millennium, if you're an amillennialist, which I am, you're going to read the first resurrection as corresponding to the resurrection of Israel, the Valley of Dry Bones, the coming back to life of the people of God. So it's not, you're not going to worry so much about the fact that the resurrection isn't bodily in this context, because you say, well, it wasn't really in the Ezekiel 37 either. Then you get the Battle of Gog and Magog. Then you get the birds gorging on corpses. But of course, that has happened in chapter 19, as in the bit we'll read in a moment. But then John gets taken to a very high mountain, and then he is, measures the city and the temple. And then at the end of both of those, you end up with a new city with a temple full of glory and a life-giving river flowing through the middle of it, giving life to the trees and the leaves and the fruits and the healing of the nations. Now, Many of us have probably seen those associations before. At least if you're reading Ezekiel, you're going to notice some of them. But I think when you see them all laid out, you think, wow, that's a, that's a very clear retelling of the narrative. And I think it, as I say, I think it pays off, particularly when it comes to the millennium. That's where I find it most helpful because it helps you see what John is doing with that resurrection story. Because otherwise, you think, resurrection story, martyrs coming back to life, but they didn't have any heads. What's going on there? And I think when you read it through, you, you're going to see it as the, John's analogy to the Valley of Dry Bones Ezekiel's prophetic preaching and the rising to new life in the spirit of the people of God rather than a bodily resurrection at the end of time. And of course, if you're a premillennialist, you'll say, what bunk? Of course, it's a bodily resurrection and we'll have to read the whole text in a different way and that's, that's fine. But that, I think if you're Emil, you're going to see that as very significant and it's going to help you explore the connections. So Revelation is recapitulating Ezekiel, I think. And that's an, that's an outline page, right? Just giving us a sort of sense of the thread of most of what we're going to do, in fact, all of what we'll do for the rest of today and the rest of the book. But we do need to talk about the, the harlot, the prostitute, the whore, and the beast. And as I said, we will, we will discuss this in, in a few minutes' time in the form of a conversation. Um, and I, I, at this point, as you, as you know, I, I, I risk overstating the extent to which it matters. I think, as I said, when in preaching, I think if I had changed my mind a week ago in our preaching series and decided that actually, no, I was wrong, the harlot is Rome after all, I don't think any of the previous 16 chapters would have been expounded differently as I was preaching. So I don't, I don't want to overplay the difference this makes. And of course, I also think there's a, there's, it's very possible that there is a deliberate ambiguity and that the reason why there are good reasons to think it's Jerusalem and good reasons to think it's Rome is because the whole text has been set up to create exactly that question. 
and that it is, it's, John is laying breadcrumbs, Hansel and Gretel style, to two completely different ovens. And we're intended to think, oh, is it that one or is it that one? And we're kind of, yes, I mean, that might be part of it. Having said that, I am fairly persuaded, um, having read, obviously, you know, lots of the different interpretations, but I'm, I'm fairly persuaded that we, although the, that the beast is definitely Rome, but the harlot is Jerusalem. And I find that if you read the, the beast is Rome and the harlot is Rome, then the drama of chapter 17 in particular makes very little sense to me. I don't understand what it even means to see the beast making war on the harlot and destroying her and burning her with fire. And I also don't really know when people think that actually is supposed to have happened, particularly for those who take a more preterist view of the book. Um, so here's a little brief case for that. And I'm suspending, you know, if you like, leaving out there the fact that we have already encountered the great city, Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. That's another reason. And that we've therefore, every time we've heard the great city mentioned then, since then, as we did in chapter 14 and then comes in in chapter 17, that we are assuming that it's Jerusalem from that text. I've made that case at that point already. That, to me, is an additional thought bubble here, but not one worth mentioning again particularly. But I do think that even from Revelation 17 alone, there's a strong case to make that we're talking about Jerusalem, even though chapter 18 gives a number of indications that that's generally where people would go to say it's Rome. In chapter 17, the harlot and the beast she rides are obviously different. So the harlot rides a beast and Jesus rides a beast. Jesus rides a horse, the harlot rides a scarlet beast, Um, But they are clearly different. And the beast is going to end up hating, consuming, and burning with fire the harlots. And that, to me, is is important. We effectively, we don't just have a harlot being thrown down. We have a beast and a harlot, both of whom are being destroyed. And once again, back to the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. We have a, and actually right the way back to Balaam and Balak, that we have a, a king and a prophet. We have state power and religious power align together in their persecution of the people of God. And I don't think that's something that we have to wait to figure out in chapter 17. I think that the theme of an alliance between state and imperial and religious power has been running throughout the book and that we're going to face pressure from both. We're going to face the king of Moab and we're going to face the false prophet who he hires to speak curses over Israel. We're going to get both. And I think we're expecting that. And then when we get two beasts... We expect we've seen the same thing, and then when we get a beast and a prostitute, we're going to get the same thing. That's how I see the connection. So this isn't suddenly, we're not at chapter 17 or 18 going, whoa, who on earth is this? I think we're assuming at this point we have two enemies, not one. And not one in two forms, but two. The seven-headed, ten-horned beast is clearly Rome. We've made that case, I think, and even the seven-hilled city. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that the seven-hilled, you go to Rome today, and you, you know, it's still, the seven hills still form part of the mythology of the city even now. I think this, that's very obviously, that's one of the clearest cryptic symbols in the book, I think. And, of course, we made the case that the beast out of the sea is Rome back in chapter 13. So I think I probably, you know, you might not be persuaded, but to me that's, a, that's as, as clear as we can be on some of these symbols. But at the same time, of course, we are introduced to a harlot. And the harlot, we're not starting from scratch here. The harlot in the Old Testament is Israel. Um, And of course, that's being said, as we've repeatedly said, but I do want to stress it because otherwise people play the anti-Semitism card and say, you must be wrong because otherwise people will hate the Jews. And I think, no, no, no. This is a regular theme throughout the Old Testament that Jesus draws on himself and God's unfaithful wife is uh, the classic, the Auckland's classic study on that, which just goes in, or Whoredom, I think was the title they released it under in America, and they felt the Brits wouldn't swallow it, so they changed the title to God's Unfaithful Wife. But it's a, it's, it's a very, very prominent theme. As, and Hosea is the text where it's clearest, but Ezekiel and many others. You know, this is what you do, O Israel. You commit whoredom. You are a prostitute who is 
you know, pledged in marriage to God and who has slept and played the whore with all the, with the idols under every green tree. Uh, you have, you have given, your, given your life and your fidelity and your sexuality away to other gods. And that image is very prominent. So it's not impossible that that's changed its referent. But I think it's, again, you're reading through the text in sequentially. You're going, great city, let the Lord was crucified, Jerusalem, okay, fine. The harlot, yeah, okay, we've seen her before. We know what that means, biblically speaking. The unfaithful wife. She is dressed in priestly clothing with a name on her forehead. And again, the idea of, you know, the name marked across the forehead is a very priestly image. The idea of the Torah being across the forehead. So again, this, is, this represents religious power. I th- and I think it represents Jewish religious power, in symbolically speaking, certainly as we're tracking through chapter 17. And we then do have to ask a question. What does it mean to be ruler of the kings of the earth or the land in chapter 18? We have to get there. But at this point, as we're tracking through, I don't think we would have any questions about it being Israel or Jerusalem at this stage. She is a city drunk with the blood of the saints. And that takes us back to 11 and verse 8. And, of course, back to some of the things Jesus said about the way that Jerusalem treated the prophets and the saints at the end of the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, you know, since you're gonna, you're gonna, you kill all the prophets, you kill all the prophets, you kill all the prophets, and then you're going to kill the son as well. Uh, obviously, the fact that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem and the, that many of the early church martyrs were martyred in Jerusalem as well from Stephen onwards. She is a mother whom we encounter in the wilderness, and this takes us back to that mysterious Zachariah woman in a basket called Iniquity that gets taken out to the wilderness and then parked there and then reappears much later in the story. And this is where my favorite line in the whole of Lightheart's two volumes, uh, when he describes this moment, he, John, he says, John is amazed. Says, His amazement is appalled surprise. He knows this woman. He's seen her before, laboring in heaven, fleeing the dragon. He is startled. Is that you, Ma? I just think that's such a fantastic line. And he said, I wrote it, I spoke to him about it, and he said, oh, I'd written it in the commentary. And I thought they were going to edit it out. I didn't think Scott Swain and Mike Allen would let that stand. But I, I just laughed so much. As I was reading it, I was just thinking, yeah, that, the shock in a sense of saying, if this interpretation were correct, the idea that the woman, the mother of Israel, has gone off into the wilderness to be protected, but at the end of that period of protection has actually become a means by which the church are persecuted, which, of course... Even if I'm wrong about this, that is what happens, right? That is effectively the story of Israel versus the church in the course of the emerging you know, years of the first century. That's just an astonishing way of doing the reveal. Of, John. of course, John would be horrified to see, hang on a second, we, we have met the woman. And she was, last time we saw her, she was clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And now she's gone off to the wilderness and now she's back in the wilderness, but she's persecuting the church, drunk and dressed like a harlot. And what would you say if you saw your mum dressed like that? I just think it's a really beautiful way of saying it, even if it's complete hooey. Um, and of course, I would, I would just raise the rhetorical question. How can the horns, that is, you know, the rulers of Rome, and we'll come to that in a moment, but how can the horns hate the harlot if both of them are Rome? I mean, I'm, I'm actually, in a way, I'm actually asking, we'll have that discussion in a few minutes, I'm sure. But I think, so chapter 17, to me, makes a very strong case that we're talking about Jerusalem. Mostly, the reasons why people say it's not are drawn from chapter 18 because of all of the references to trade and wealth and, and seafaring trade, which, of course, and being seated on the waters, which, of course, makes it look more like Rome. But we're going to... That's, that's the positive case, if you like, for now. You then get the description of the heads and the horns so that our beast is back. Um, just, I just think it's such a great image. I thought it was worth mentioning twice. Um, the heads. The, the beast seems, like in chapter 13, to be a composite picture of Daniel... <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me, of Daniel's four beasts, seven heads, ten horns in all. 
But their heads are difficult. All right, so in verses 9 to 10, if you want to, I'm sure you're already there, but my computer has faded to black, as it often does. Um, But if you go to verses 9 to 10 of chapter 17, this is tricky, right? This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman's seated. Fine. So the seven heads of the beast are the seven hills of Rome. Good. And the woman is sitting on it. They are also seven kings, five of whom has fallen. One is, the other hasn't yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And then the beast that was and is not is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. Now, that's obscure. I think almost no matter what you do with it, you're going to end up feeling like you're trying to explain a very complicated text. So they are difficult. Are they Caesars? Are they empires? Are they, you know, are the heads? Do the heads refer to the Caesars or to the empires? And I tend to go with the idea that the heads refer to empires and the horns refer to the Caesars, which is on the other side of the page. One way of mapping that would be to say, well, this is what we have in the course of the seven heads, right? So we know we've got seven, and then there's an eighth, which is a sort of, you know, the unexpected intensification of things at the end of this period. One way of doing it, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that this is the only way, but I think it's the, the one that I find the least silly at the moment, assuming it's Rome, is to say that we do have, you know, we've actually seen six of the heads go already, right? So the, our lion is Babylon, and that's fallen. Persia, the bear is Persia, and that's fallen. The four Greek heads have also all fallen. Um, or also, uh, sorry, three of the four heads are all fallen, but we are in the fourth now, the fourth phase of that. And then Neronian Rome, the one that is the seventh, the beast that's terrifying and very, very powerful, is the one that's trying to come in to get us now. And then bestial Rome, effectively, and the unraveling of the Jewish war in the late 60s. But I think any way you do it, it's going to sound a bit of a stretch. Um, I think. But I'm, just, I'm just not sure. I don't know whether, whether this is one of those things where people at the time would have gone, totally get that, I know, and for whatever reason no one wrote it down and told us, or whether they similarly would have been puzzled and in a way the, the puzzlement was part of the point in the sense that it would lead people to go, are we in this phase now? And for everyone to be prepared that this might happen to us. It could be a deliberate ambiguity. Of course, reading as idealists, we can see the same imperial opposition to the gospel throughout history. So in some ways, the specific referent in the first century of each head and horn won't worry us as much, because we'll say, well, that mattered a great deal for them. But to be honest, we're seeing the same kind of thing in our day. Richard Borkham, any society whom Babylon's cap fits must wear it. Yeah, it's a good comment. And that's, and that's the, that again, my have your cake and eat it. This is why I want to be, this is to, to me, Lightheart is too preacherist. And Beale is too idealist, and I want to get the best of both worlds by saying, I think you can say that's what it would have originally meant, but let's, let's reflect on the fact that that actually is going to speak to every generation. And of course, with the idealist hat on, we can see that's going to be us for an hour day. But reading as preacherists, we do see significance in the very specific details John gives us here. And I think Revelation 17, particularly verses 8, 9, 10, 11, are among the hardest texts in the whole book to make sense of if you read it just in an idealist way. So if you go, oh, who on earth, what on earth is, if John's intention was to communicate timeless spiritual reverberating concepts of opposition to the gospel, what on earth is he doing going in with six of this and then one and then an eighth and then they've got ten horns and these are the ten and what they mean? Why did he do that? Because no one will have understood it. At least if you read with a preacherist hat on, you've got a first century reference to that, even if it's slightly out of reach of 21st century interpreters. So that's to me why I think a best of both worlds. I'd want to give, a, in that sense, a a corrective to both the Lightheart reading and the Beale reading, in a sense. Um, but that's the heads. 
Then you have horns, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They'll make the harlot desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. The ten horns then presumably belong to the fourth beast and destroy and set fire to the harlot. So again, for me, easiest reading of that is the ten horns represent rulers of Rome who do destroy and set fire to the harlot. George Caird, who's done some great, we haven't actually referred much to Caird, but he's done some fantastic work on Revelation, marvellous, obviously dead now, but what marvellous scholar. And he says these are the first ten emperors of Rome. And you just list them, and they'd mostly be very familiar names, except towards the end. But Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellus, and Vespasian. He says, actually, they are. Now, in the end, the, the real challenge with the horns is this comment that they haven't yet received royal power. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't know why it's... Unless it is using the ten as, as a sort of... A bit like a Hendidas, as a, a bit why I'm saying the ten horns collectively representing the Caesars have not yet got to their worst. They haven't yet done their worst against the harlots and against the people of God. Worse is to come. They haven't yet received full royal authority. But and the other way of doing it, of course, is to say that the ten horns are all Caesars who are subsequent to the writing of the book of Revelation. But as you'll see, if you read the literature, that people who try and identify each of the ten horns almost always end up in a hopeless tangle, as to some degree, I think, Caird's version does here. The nice thing about Caird's is that they are the first ten, which is quite a, a neat setup, and they do run through the entire period covered by the book of Revelation and from before. So in some ways, the fact that it finishes with Vespasian is appropriate, and I find that a more likely ten than any other ten, but it does give me problems with the phrasing, they haven't yet received royal power, unless what I previously said as an explanation is correct. Phil. Um, with the Caesars, as a matter of yeah. Do you mean as in, is he trash-talking the emperors by calling them kings? Is, is he deliberately referring to them as kings in order to almost blow their cover because they're just pretending that they aren't kings, but they are? Yeah. Oh, I see. So you, effectively, you wouldn't read the not yet. You, and that, if that was true, you're not reading the not yet received royal power. You're not reading that temporarily, as if to say they are going to receive royal power, but they, they haven't received it, or at least they haven't yet come clean about the fact that they have. Okay, that is a very... I've never heard that, and that is a really interesting take. Another, should, we, should we do a, a ripple of applause for that suggestion? I think that's... Oh! Sorry, no offence to Luke, but when I asked for a ripple, was it you yesterday? But you got a ripple, but the ripple was much more underwhelming than that ripple. I don't know. I know. I quite agree. I just I think for some reason people think that his his ripple was more worthy than your ripple. <laughs> so yeah, I, I like that. Sorry, was that? Did you say somebody said we didn't give him a ripple? We gave him a raspberry ripple, which is presumably where you blow a raspberry at him or something like that. Look at Luke, he looks terrified. He's crushed by this. <laughs> okay, marvellous. Um, so, sorry. Let me just move on to the, to the page on the fall of Babylon now. And, uh, and you'll see, of course, that there are. And I, I would be the, I might not be the first, but I would certainly be one of the first to say that there are compelling suggestions in the text of chapter 18 to associate Babylon more with Rome. Um, and I, I, in the end, I still think that the, the best way of reading it is to see it as Jerusalem, but I think that there are 
you know, it might even be a deliberate ambiguity, as I've said. But if you see Babylon as Jerusalem and see AD 70 as the fulfillment of these prophecies, then you will see meaning to all kinds of details in chapter 18. So effectively, what I mean, it's really how you make a decision and when. If you're reading through the book sequentially and you're trying to figure out what's going on with the symbols, then by the end of chapter 17, I think you're thinking, oh, I know who the Scarlet Beast is, that's Rome, and I know who the prostitute is, that's Jerusalem. I wonder what's going to happen next. And then when you read through chapter 18, if you were already persuaded of that and you hadn't yet read the end of chapter 18 about merchants and trading and the, on, trading with all the kings of the earth and the whole thing collapsing and wealth and all that, cargo, you might go, oh, well, in that case, this is Jerusalem. And now I'm seeing a spin on the fact that it's Jerusalem being presented through chapter 18 in a way that's quite surprising. You will notice, you'll think, for instance, Babylon is infested with demons. And that's what, gee, in fact, I was reading that text in my devotions this morning, as it happens. I just had reached Matthew 12 in my quiet times. And that's the passage I was reading this morning about the fact that, you know, the, the seven demons go away and then they come back, or the demon goes away and then seven come back. And Jesus is warning, of course, Israel about the infestation with demons. You'll see significance to the suddenness of judgment with the city burned and destroyed. Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21. You'll see significance in the flight of the new Jerusalem from inside the old Jerusalem, lest the church suffer as well. And that's not what happened in Rome, but it is what happened in Jerusalem. Everything, historically speaking, the Jews were kicked out of Rome and then returned, but the Christians were not exiled from Rome. The Christians were killed inside it, of course, in the 60s, but they weren't exiled from it. But in Jerusalem, they, li they literally did. They fled. Um, and Jesus told them that they should. And you'll see that connection. You think that's significant. You'll see the connection of all of the blood of all of the prophets and saints being found in her, which is how Jesus finishes his very fiery woes on the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You'll see significance between, in the overlap between the list of traded goods in chapter 18 and the traded goods listed of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. You'll, go, you'll say, well, hang on, what are we going to make then of all of the, you know, the ivory and the gold and the human slaves and all the rest of it? What are we going to make of all of those goods? That sounds like a trading Nation. That sounds like a, like a port city. That sounds like a, the capital of the world. So surely that must be Rome, mustn't it? And I think you're then, but if you're by this point are going, ah, I think we've, I'm assuming this is Jerusalem already, you're then going to go back and say, but then you can go back to 1 Kings chapter 5 and chapter 10 and see huge lists of all of the things that were traded in and through Jerusalem. And you'll see this as, the, as classic, along with this, you might even pick up the 666 Solomon connection and you might go, ah, we, we do know that kind of thing in the establishment of the temple that Jerusalem was at the very center of the trading world and did do that in order to build a very elaborate temple, but ultimately in Solomon's leadership, feather their own nest. And that is what led to the splitting and you know, unraveling of the nation, and maybe that's what's happening now. So you see, that connection will mean more to you if or you're already at this point going, I think this might be Jerusalem. In a sense, what that's then doing is, pr is providing an alternative reading of, if you only had Revelation 18, I think you'd probably guess it was Rome. If you only had Revelation 17, you'd guess it was Jerusalem, I think. But if you read Revelation 17 and then have it as Jerusalem in your mind as you start reading Revelation 18, you'll probably reinterpret a lot of those things. You think on their own, on the face value, that might look Roman. But actually, you then go, no, but that, a lot of other biblical texts explicate what's taking place here, particularly texts that most of those texts, as you can see, are from the ministry and preaching of Jesus. The overthrow of the city, of course, also echoes Jesus' judgment of the temple system, along with his prophecies of destruction upon the whole city. You might even see significance in the throwing down of the city like a millstone into the sea for leading the little ones astray. The old Jerusalem goes up in smoke, and then the new Jerusalem comes down. Now, that on its own, none of those things on their own convinced, but what they do, I suppose, is to provide an alternative reading of the 
commercial side of the identity of the city in chapter 18, and that one that I find persuasive, um, but we will discuss that more in a few minutes. But of course, as you're also going to read Babylon with your idealist, that's the preacherist reading, this is the idealist reading, you're going to read Babylon as idolatrous empire, and you're going to say, yeah, this is symbolic of any idolatrous trading empire then or now. You're going to say that sexual immorality combines with greed to produce adulterous, rich, luxurious living. Luckily, luckily that never happens now. Um, but that might be something that does happen when empires get too prosperous. They become, the, word, the classic word for that is decadence, isn't it? That The values that they have, the sort of martial values that strengthen a society when it's trying to forge out and conquer end up becoming decadent values. In this, I'm not saying martial values are good either, by the way, but they, you, in the late stage of a society, as we are now in sort of late modernity, many people would say, we, you become increasingly decadent they become everybody becomes increasingly lazy and affluent you live in brave new world territory and you have the bumble puppy to keep you occupied and you're fine and so you live these sort of very luxurious greed luxury is mentioned a surprising number of times in chapter 18 and many of us would luxury is a is many almost seen as a positive word isn't it you go on a luxury holiday that's like that just means a very high quality thing but it's pretty roundly condemned in chapter 18 um, along with adultery and greed. When the judgment of God falls upon such empires, no amount of trade, wealth, luxury, financial strength, military prowess, or cult worship of other deities can save them. And that's what you see, is the, an empire that looks beyond a sailing because it's so secure and so strong. And then you see it being completely overthrown in a single day. And that's a, one of the great warnings to the complacency of modern empire. And by the way, I don't think we can get ourselves off the hook by just going, huh, that's the Americans which is instinctively how many of us do it. Can I think of a greedy, prosperous, adulterous culture that is in a decadent phase and that as a result has ended up electing somebody who... Uh, am I, can I think of such a thing? And the thing is, we would... You know, it's too easy to point the finger, isn't it? And go... But that's, of course, this is... In a sense, this is what Kipling was warning about 100 years ago in his poem, Recessional. You know, where it's, you know, God of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. When all, our king, when all the kingdoms of... Uh, the low, beyond the headland sinks the fire and all the kingdoms of our day have come like Nineveh and Tyre. God of the nations, help us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. It's, it, it, I've misquoted it. It's something like that. But it's him, it's him using the images of ju- biblical judgment passages like the fall of Nineveh and the fall of Tyre to say this is going to happen to the British Empire as well. And it's all very well, very well for us to celebrate how well we've done and how long Victoria has been on, been on the throne. But we're going to unravel too. And we must remember the judgment of God is coming. It's a very powerful poem, and one that in some ways is supposed to call to mind exactly this kind of text, which is to me the great irony of the fact that the Hallelujah Chorus, which we read in chapter 19, these days, I mean, it's a celebration of the fact that the, city, the great city of wealth and greed and luxury has come crashing down, and the merchants of the earth are howling and wailing and lamenting it. But the Hallelujah Chorus these days is primarily sung in nice, pristine, middle-class churches in mid-Sussex, um, like the one I grew up in, in, and that's where the Hallelujah Chorus is often sung by the very people who are lamenting the fall of Babylon in the book of Revelation. That is those who have grown, wealth, grown wealthy and even luxurious lives as a result of Babylon being established. So in, in our world, the people who sing the Hallelujah Chorus are the wealthy, mainly, because it's part of the culture. But in their world, the people who lamented the fall of Babylon were the wealthy and the people celebrating it, of course, were the martyrs and the Christians who are the people from heaven. By the way, this is not an argument against... It's a stunning piece of music, right? I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't sing it. I just think we have, you, you domesticate texts like this so easily. 
You say, this is just an overthrow of evil, which I'm sure is somewhere in the future. And no, no, this is referring to idolatrous empire and all of the money she had made being thrown down with violence into the sea and never being found again. And so we need to preach it that way, even if we are saying in its first century context, it's understood this way. As empires gain in strength, of course, they aspire to deity and they sacrifice human blood to sustain it. That's what every empire does. And in our, in our empire, we sacrifice an awful lot of human blood in order to maintain our freedoms. And there might be blood in other, in other nations and it might just be the blood of very, very young people in order to make sure that we can carry on doing what we want sexually. But all empires sacrifice. All empires are sustained, in a sense, by making something that the price you're prepared to pay in order to keep your sexual or your greed or your wealth or your military power and your freedom. And the saints celebrate when finally she, the idolatrous power behind these empires, is judged. And obviously that's not just true of Jerusalem or Rome. It's true of Rome and the barbarians. When the barbarians came into Rome in 410 and sacked it, it's true of the Islamic caliphates. It's true of the Mongols when the, you know, the Mongols arrived and just, again, trashed Baghdad and everything. You suddenly, you get this, you look what looks like an unassailable empire and it often falls almost instantly as as the Islamic Caliphate did. It's true of the Qing Dynasty, which, again, looked like it would be there for a, just a thousand years and just falls very, very quickly. It's true of modern capitalist empires. It's true, really, of how quickly did Britain lose its empire. Um, and obviously, in the end, you, I think Britain lost its empire almost instantaneously, but only realised Britain had lost its empire about 20 years later. And true of the World Wars. It's true of empires more generally. Often they fall very suddenly, having looked like they were never going to go. And as the horny harlot falls, the bride is celebrated before being seen in chapter 21. We don't actually meet her yet, but we hear the song, at least, or the blessing over those who are invited to the wedding supper. Note, it is granted her to clothe herself with righteous deeds, which is a beautiful picture of, the, of divine agency at work in human agency. It is not just granted her. She, righteous deeds are done for her. Well, the gift of God is the ability to clothe yourself with righteous deeds. That's how grace works. Grace comes to you by the power of the Spirit and enables you to work righteous deeds. And so you have been given the gift of being able to clothe yourself with righteousness, as well as being standing in the righteousness of Christ, of course. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Any, uh, any initial any questions? Obviously, let's, we'll, we'll do the Jerusalem, Babylon, Rome thing in a moment, but any kind of questions or clarifications on what I've just said in that section. Rich. Form of your worship or the function of your worship to become more important than the form. 
Um, I don't know how to summarize that for those of you who are listening, (laughs) uh, who are not in the room at the moment. Um, I'll simply say, that sounds very plausible. I hadn't hadn't seen that that form and function distinction in that way, but that does sound very plausible to me, yes. And I think that's certainly at work in what John is... If you read it as a two-volume work, then I think that is certainly present in John's judgment of it. The temple cleansing story, of course, is accented in different ways by the different evangelists, isn't it? That, that is, this, is the problem here that it's not a house of prayer or that it's not a house of prayer for all nations, that it's distinctive? Is it the fact that it's become a den of brigands or robbers? And if so, how are you going to read that word? Are they insurrectionaries? Are they plotting revolution? Or are they simply trading or stealing? Is the problem trade in the house of God? And the evangelists seem to tell the story with slightly different accents. And of course, John, as we've said, moves the story right to the front of the gospel um, rather than leaving it at the end where the others do. And that's got its own backstory. So in some ways, to, to, you can't flatten all of them. I think you can harmonize them, but I don't think you should flatten them into one another. Um, but I think under John's telling of it, I can see that as very plausible, yes. Let's, uh, let's welcome to the stage the Reverend Dr. Ian Paul, who is going to join us as our special guest. What's this? I, that's... Did you know you were going to do that when you walked in this morning? This is, a, this is how to present yourself as the kind of person that we don't need to sort of stand there in hallowed silence about. If I'd invited Peter Lightheart, we wouldn't have walked in like that. So um, let me grab a chair. Um, so Ian, as you'll know by now, because we've quoted him many times. And... Good. Yes? Good. And uh, we have... I think the answer is. I think the answer is some, sometimes. Sometimes not angry, just disappointed. Um, I love it. Um, so I just thought it'd be fun. Like Ian is um, a fantastic guy. He's become a friend and is. He'd been in and out. In about in and out of London for all sorts of reasons. And we thought today it would be really fun to have him come and join us and just spend some time talking. Mainly about Revelation, although probably not entirely. Are you all right with that mic? Is that one? No, I think okay. so. And then we'll probably just see how the, um, we got, this session runs through until 11, so this is perfect. Light, isn't it? it is. That's so that people can see you, Ian. Okay, I don't know good, whether okay. <laughs> if that's all right. Um, it's the first time I've been here since 1963. The first time you've been where? Blackheath area. Really? Yeah. Why did you avoid Blackheath for 50 years? Uh, well, I was born here and nobody ever invited me back, so. Seriously? Yeah. Which hospital? I don't actually remember. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying any of us actually remember our birth. No, no, in that no, no. Way, we, we left when I was one, so you oh, know. Well, so, well yeah. welcome back. Thank you. Um, Thank you. you it's it for- fun here. It's, it's like a cross-cultural experience. London. It, yeah, yeah. In, in Nottingham, people sit outside and have coffee in a place where there's like a lake or birds and trees. Mm. But I see here in London, people sit mm. next to railway lines and main roads drinking yeah, coffee. Do. But we you do. Know, whatever. We do. The coffee's better than it is in Nottingham, though. I suspect. It, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Who's from Nottingham here? Who was that booing? Oh, oh. dear. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so, Ian, I want to. Can we jump right in? Yeah, let's I just ask you. Obviously, what's it like to write a commentary on a biblical book? And I don't mean that just in a sort of promote your book way, but in a kind of how. You can be in a your book I, way. I imagine. I'm see, there's still some stuff. Your there, appearance here is promotional. <laughs> but do you find yourself. Do you start 
and because I've never done it, and I probably never will, but do you start with a pretty clear idea of how you're going to do everything, or as you get into it, do you find yourself changing your mind on things? And if so, what sorts of surprises did you encounter by going, doing a deep dive into a text that you presumably had preached before, but hadn't ever done that level of well, work? Well, I've done my PhD on it as well, so it wasn't exactly new, so, mm. yeah. Um, it, uh, the main thing that I remember is an ethereal sense of being in the eschatological presence of God. That sounds terribly... Mm. Does that sound very pretentious? No. Um, that's, <laughs> that's what we've been doing. Oh, right, good, okay. Um, although just been in the ethereal presence of Andrew Wilson. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, was quite, it felt quite extraordinary, actually, and I'd love to do it again. Uh, I did the main work. I sort of built up to it for two years while I put off the, the publisher who kept pressing me about the contract deadline. Um, but I did the main writing in a period of uh, quite an intense period of six months. So in my I didn't I didn't not do, I didn't not do anything else. But in my writing weeks, my general habit was to get up early at six thirty and start writing at seven. And I'd usually done the research uh, the day before for those particular texts. Uh, and when you're writing a commentary, you have a very very tight structure. So I did the sums and I worked out I had twenty four thousand words for the introduction. And then I had 254 words for every verse to write, which actually isn't very much. No. You have to be very, very no, compressed. You could write a paragraph, and that, that's... And yeah, for each verse. So when I got up in the morning, I knew what I had to do, which was I had to cover eight verses and write 2,000 words, so r- roughly speaking. Uh, so I would start working at 7 and write 1,000 words and then have breakfast. It's nice to get half your day's work done by 9 o'clock. Uh, and then I'd write, usually write the other 1,000 words the rest of the morning. And then the afternoon, after doing a bit of gardening I would, um, and sunbathing, I'd then do the research for the, the, the detailed research for the following day's writing. Um, but obviously, I'd been you know, reading stuff for 20 years or so, 25 mm. years. So I wasn't, did you, I wasn't did, a standing start. Had you done so much work on it before that you basically knew what you thought every text meant? Or did you, did you get surprises? But is that that, uh, both, because there are some texts that I'd revisited a lot. My PhD was on Revelation 12 and 13, so I kind of wrote that bit with my eyes closed. Uh, it, when, you, when you actually know more than anyone else in the world about your text... I mean, sorry, that, that sounds a bit immodest. Uh, <laughs> a bit? <laughs> <laughs> But when you've done four years' work just on two chapters, yes. you do, actually, because, yeah. because you can read everything that's ever been written about it. So mm. I had read everything from the very first commentary, which was by Methodius, who was the, the, the brother of Cyril of Alexander, uh, who invented the Cyrillic alphabet, um, and right the way through the, through the history of interpretation. And I discovered a couple of things in the text which no one had ever seen before. That's always really exciting. The idea that, the idea that you can actually discover something in a text which no one... In 2000 years, can you? What, what was it? Oh, well, the, it was particularly in um, Revelation 12 6, where uh, you have Michael and his angels fighting the, um, uh, the Satan and his angels. Can you hear the rustling. I That's the everybody rustling. going there to check and say, How on yeah, earth yeah, has yeah, no yeah, one great. ever seen this before, right? Okay. So uh, they do battle, and then there's a phrase which, it, thank you, which in English is usually translated something like, um, they, they, they fought and, there was, and uh, Michael defeated uh, Satan and there was no room for him or something like that. There was no longer space no for him. No room for him in heaven, yeah. Yeah, no room for him in heaven. Actually, the phrase is slightly odd and in Greek it says there was no longer a place found for him in heaven. Uptopos uh, the Have you got the Greek in front of you? Yeah. Ud, yeah, verse 8. Yeah, so it's not that he, there was no more space for him. No longer was 
his place found. Now that was just struck me as I was reading it through as a slightly odd phrase. Why is that? So I then did a search in the Old Testament for that phrase. It comes in two places. It comes in Daniel 2.36 and it comes in Psalm 37 or 36, depending on whether you're looking at Septuagint or Hebrew. Um, and in Daniel, the, the statue... The, 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 the fourfold statue with the feet of clay, the, the, the mountain, the stone rolls down from the mountain, which is the kingdom of heaven, and it destroys the statue. And topos uh, the, the place for it was no longer found. And in the uh, psalm, it's a psalm which begins, uh, um, do not despair because of the wicked. And, the wicked is this. and then at the end of the psalm, it goes back and it says, it says in Greek, I went back and guess what? No longer was his place found. Now, there's, there's two reasons why that's really significant. One is that in Daniel, you have the fourfold kingdom, which then becomes the fourfold beast in Daniel 7. Of course, you've got the beast then that follow in, in Revelation 13, that uh, merged into one, a beast that comes from the sea, signifying the Roman Empire. So merging those four, four empire beasts in Daniel. And in um, the psalm, we think of it as a general psalm about the general wicked person. But when you look at the commentary in Qumran on that, it isn't a generalized archetypal wicked person. It is the wicked priest who is opposing the eschatological teacher of righteousness who is the leader of the community. So do you see you've actually got a convergence of two themes in apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic judgment. And both of them are saying that actually the anointed one of God is the one who defeats the... uh, um, the kingdom of the enemy. So in Daniel, it's the son of man in chapter 7 who comes on the clouds to the ancient of days, who is giving an everlasting kingdom, which is the kingdom, which is the stone that rolls down the mountain, Daniel 2. Daniel 7 is an apocalyptic visionary replay of Daniel 2. Uh, so, and then in Qumran, you've then got a similar apocalyptic hermeneutic of, of that psalm. And in Revelation, you've then got the convergence of those two Biblical strands exactly in this phrase. And then the phrase is actually summarizing the work of Jesus in, uh, on the cross and resurrection. And again, you get that pretty explicitly in the Johannine language of uh, uh, now, in John 12, now has come the hour for the, the now, now will the um, rule of this, of this world be defeated. Mm. Jesus anticipating the Or you find in Luke, again, a similar uh, hermeneutical trajectory where in Luke, 11, Luke 10, 10, 10, when the 72 return, and they say, even the demons believe, and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Mm. So again, you get this convergence. And in fact, one of the things I'd like to explore a bit more is there are actually a lot of connections between Luke's gospel and the book of Revelation, yeah. would you believe? There's some actually some really key theological linguistic connections, which, again, is not quite what you'd expect. Yeah. But it also demonstrates that the New Testament is much more theologically and textually coherent than a lot yeah. of... Uh, uh, so in many ways, so it's, it's out okay. the outcome. So I found that. So I yeah. discovered that. That's very good. No one else. <laughs> but what's interesting about it is that, that may sound like a really odd, obscure thing, but that textual connection just actually confirms a whole yeah. series of theological convergences that, you, that other people have seen. Yeah, and it reinforces, in a way, the, the, the you know, state... and the, One of them is effectively imperial, the other one's priestly, which is fascinating in the Daniel versus the psalm. I didn't know that you found that. Yeah, all but right, it okay. reinforces it's the, the double... The, sorry? It's in the commentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember everything I read. Really oh, oh, OK. Um, but, I'm, I'm not angry. Just 
but the, <laughs> that's going to be useful for you, isn't it? Yeah, but the but the both the both and of the imperial and the religious dimension to effectively what the devil is trying to do in yeah. the Book of Revelation. Both yeah, 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 quite, yeah, quite yeah. And again, see, this is really interesting that that both in critical scholarship, but also in practice in churches, Revelation is the outlier. So in critical scholarship, Revelation is wacky. It's uh, environmentally catastrophic. It's uh, embodies violence. It's anti-feminist. So it's definitely on the margins. Uh, but actually, in most churches, it's, um, yeah. uh, it's pretty marginal as well. Uh, I, I just looked up my blog post I wrote after, after a conversation, after I was reading Peter Lightheart's commentary about Babylon and Rome. And then I just, I just reread it this morning. I looked at the comments. And of course, the, <laughs> the moment you say anything about that, oh, well, it, Babylon clearly is Jerusalem because that's the place where the Antichrist is going to come from, you know, like next year or whenever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, that's clear because you're going to set up the new temple and, and then Russia's going to invade because that's Gog and Magog. And they're going to land on this particular beach in Israel because that's what Revelation tells us. So, so you can see, I can see why most ordinary church members kind of say, yeah. ah, no, no, yeah. thank you. I'll just, I'll just stick with the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, you know. Yeah. And I always point out to people, it's really interesting, isn't it, that when, when Jesus says to the disciples, the sun is going to be darkened, the moon's going to be turned to blood, stars will fall from heaven, the disciples go, yeah, sure. When Jesus says, a sower went out to sow the seed, the disciples go, what is this crazy teaching? <laughs> We've got no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. <laughs> can't we just go back to the hail and the stars and the blood moon stuff we, we, were, we were much more comfortable with that you know I've never thought of, I've never seen yeah? it that way that's so and, and, and the, we, somehow we flipped that round you know it's, it's strange yeah <laughs> I like that I'm definitely going to make that point they're sitting, like, they're that's sitting that's really on the Mount of Olives and Jesus says this stuff and they go yeah, yeah. right yeah okay what's next yeah yeah so, and, then, and then quoted at Pentecost as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter goes, you know, this and this, this just happened. And all the disciples standing around going, preach it, Peter. Yeah. And then the people go, yeah, we repent. Yeah. So we could do it a bit more apocalyptic in our preaching, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> preach it, brother. But sorry, I'll okay. go back to your original question. Yes. So... Yeah, in this is what the... happens with Ian. You, you basically, it's like you press a button and then it just disappears <laughs> for 15 minutes. And I know that that may be slightly glass houses, but even so. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> He's not angry. He's, no. uh, um, uh, but so there are some bits of the uh, text where I felt quite at home in the sense that I'd done the homework originally. And then there are other bits of the text where I just thought, oh my goodness, I've, I've spent my life avoiding this. And the thing with writing a commentary is... You can't, okay, you can't let me interrupt you there. What did you... What, give an example. What did you, in Revelation... Oh, clouds of locusts with scorpion okay. stings right. and women's faces with beards and all... You know, I mean, you're getting beards into... Beards or beards? Beards. Well, you're getting into sort of some of the weirdest, you know... Well, as, as again, there is a major stream of scholarship about the, the queering of the text in Revelation and how you need a queer reading. Mm. So, for example... Um, did you, I don't know if you covered this. Jesus, the vision of Jesus in chapter one. Yeah, we, Jesus. Did, we did. We did talk about Jesus's breast. In fact, I quoted. <laughs> I quoted your tweets about Jesus's breasts in this setting. Yeah, I, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, in, fun, in some ways, gives a measure of the man better than anything yeah. else I've seen. <laughs> of me or of Jesus? It's mischievous, indeed. Oh, okay. But it's true. Yeah. Uh, but I what? Mean, no, so, but you hadn't avoided that. So what did you? So oh, well, chapter nine I'd avoided yeah. because it just seems so opaque. Although, in fact, I had written some Bible reading notes for Scripture Union on that before. So. 
I was, yeah, but, we, but mostly I said, I don't know what this means, but anyway, it's interesting. Um, and because uh, that's what you can say in a little thing for a Bible reading notes. Um, and then the other bit that I'd really avoided was particularly chapter 16. Mm. So the, the bowls, because they're the most sort of, you know, uncompromising sense of judgment. Yes. You, you, you can kind of navigate your way through the seals and the trumpets, but the, 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 the bowls actually have an unremitting. Yeah, really. The, the metaphorical angel is really unremitting. So that's, that's tricky. That made me think an awful lot. Um, but what was interesting, again, is that I hadn't spent much time in chapter 18, which I did find very interesting, but also, the, I don't know whether you picked that up, because I, I can see you've done quite a lot on, on picking up verbal connections through the text, uh, uh, is the connections between 16 and 18. So there's a sense in which some of the language of chapter 16 really prepares you to meet chapter 18. So mm. chapter 16 is largely expressed in biblical language, particularly from the 10 plays, but chapter 18 is much more focused on the socio-political reality yes, of what's yes. happening in the first century. But they're, but they're, but they're very clearly connected. Mm. So that was, um, yeah. Okay, so let's, get, let's, go to, let's go to Revelation 18, Revelation 17, Babylon, okay. because obviously I've, I've set that up a bit as something we'll talk yeah. about, and we have just been, we've just been talking about it as okay. well. Did he so, get it right? <laughs> this, is, this is probably the only area where I think where, where we do disagree, so it'd be fun to talk about. But... Um, but so give us, what's, what's the best, so you, the, the best case for why I'm wrong and you're right about Babylon being Rome and, and particular, particularly how do you understand the, effectively the, the, the very specific ways in which the, the beast in Revelation 17 with all of its horns who I, you know, you're clear as Rome, what does it mean for you for the beast to make war on the harlots and yet still be the same entity? Or, and, or rather, how would you nuance that to show actually it's not quite the same entity? What you, yeah, yeah. What's your reading of chapter 70? I think chapter 18 is where you yeah, say yeah. that's... Yeah. I, I, I made the case just now. There might be a deliberate even ambiguity here in, the, in, in that there's a, a bit... Is, are the readers even supposed to think who exactly is this? Is there a bit of both here? But I made the case that I think chapter 17 is where I would go to say it's Jerusalem and chapter 18 is where you would go to say it's Rome. So, which I assume is... Oh, no, no, no. I go to chapter 17 as well. Okay, so great. So talk us through that then. How do you... Okay. How's the beast making war on the harlot being the same nation? Okay. Uh, the... First of all, it's just worth noting that Revelation is puzzling and contradictory everywhere. Okay, so... So the idea that the right... As it were, the right interpretation. If there is a right interpretation, Mm. let's go provisionally with the idea that uh, John was intending to communicate something. Okay? Is it? Are we? Are we happy holding that as a provisional idea? (laughs) You're not. You're not. (laughs) You're not dealing with. You're not dealing with the the most postmodern audience here, I suspect. Well, okay, but um, here's a thing. When, when the Spirit of God comes on you and you utter a prophetic word, do you control the meaning of what you say? Okay, let me give you a little example. Uh, 20 years ago, I was talking to my daughter Lizzie, who's now 23, so she was about three then, about some sage plant. No, it was, we'd moved there in 2004, so that's a bit less than that. So around 2004. So I had some sage plants in my garden, and it was spring. T- it was yeah, springtime. So I decided to prune the growth of the, the foliage that was there, which was last year's growth. And Lizzie said, why are you doing that? That's quite a nice plant. Why are you cutting off? And I said, well, Lizzie, the thing is that that growth looks fine, 
But that's now had its season, and I'm pruning it so that the next generation can grow and have space to come through. And then I thought, oh, my word. Isn't that a profound observation about Christian ministry? You've got to prune last year's growth to allow the next generation to have space to grow, okay? So even I didn't know the significance of what I said as I said it. I thought I was just talking about a plant. But as I realized, as I was talking about all sorts of other things in life, okay? So we don't always even control the intention of what we say, let alone when God gives us a prophetic utterance to say something. So it's perfectly plausible, even to you non-postmoderns, because you are neo-Pentecostals, I appeal to you to say that isn't, to say that this is simply a text where John was in communicating his intention is non, it's a non-trivial assumption, okay? So I'm going to, get to say it as a, provisional claim, all right? We might want to come back to it, particularly in the light of the nature of metaphor, which we might come on to, which I think we will come on to. Okay, so I'm going to assume that John had an intention. So let's look at the text. And again, there's something here about interpretive methodology because in a lot of texts, what people tend to do is they have a flash of insight and they say, aha, I've discovered an interpretive key to this text and this is really important. That's how you get a PhD. Well, it's one of the ways you get a PhD, Okay forge a career in academia by having an idea and saying, okay, this, this is going to solve all the questions about the text. The problem with that approach is what people often do then is they get their theory from one bit of the text, then they say, okay, I'm now going to use this as an interpretive, controlling interpretive lens through which I read everything else. And the danger with that is what you then do is you end up forcing the other bits of the text yeah. into your theory. So one of the things you have to do generally with text, and it's really, really critical with Revelation. This is why I did a PhD on Revelation. I wanted to do something on biblical interpretation. I thought, what's going to help me? And I thought, I know, I'll read the most difficult text in the New Testament. If I can say anything useful about that, (laughs) that's going to help us with the easy texts. Because you can make mistakes with the easy texts, and you can go a bit wrong. It's not that bad. You make a mistake in Revelation, and because it's multifaceted, because it's so dense, because it's kind of actually even at a textual level often contradictory like in revelation 4 there's a rainbow which is like a like a, a um uh not diamond a an emerald yeah okay i don't know if you've noticed emeralds are green okay yeah you've got a problem there it's contradictory even in itself as a phrase so because it's a contradictory and a, a very dense text and a very highly connected intertextual text but also a highly discontinuous text at every point there's so a lot of discontinuity in the text. Then if you go wrong in your hermeneutical methodology, you can go very, very wrong indeed, very easily. So the key thing is to say, what are all the texts in this issue saying? We need to look at them as a whole, and we need to understand them all together, okay? So how many times does the word Babylon occur in the text? Has anyone counted? Okay, here's a, let, no, here's a little thing with Revelation... When you're looking at an interesting they're basically, word. The problem is, they've spent three days in Revelation, they think the answer to everything is seven. Yeah, no matter no. what. It's like well, the child in, in, who goes, the answer, okay, I, know, I know the answer is Jesus. But That's really interesting, okay? But who is Babylon? Okay, if it was Jerusalem or Jesus, Jesus Christ comes seven times, the word prophecy comes seven times, the word blessing comes seven times. In chapter 14, a, ju- a passage about judgment, the word sickle comes seven times. So yeah, nearly. But Babylon is not one of these things. Six. So it comes six times. Oh... Okay. Ooh, by the way, what is the number of the beast? Six, six, six. Okay. So already, just in terms of its structure, we've got a textual clue about who Babylon is. All right. 
So it comes six times. So what we need to do is look carefully at those six occurrences, all right? Now, I haven't actually memorized the text altogether, and I haven't got my crib sheet open, so I'm just going to speak. You can find the references. The first one comes in chapter 14, where the angel says, Babylon is fallen. Oh, okay, let's again notice what happens with Revelation. It's really complex. It's constantly doing uh, analepsis and prolepsis. It's always looking back and looking forwards. So Revelation 14, Babylon is fallen. That's already in anticipation of Revelation 18. Well, you get the expansion of that, yeah? So already you can see that this is a complex self-referential set of uh, comments. Um, the key parts of uh, the, the description of Babylon come in chapter 17 and come in chapter 18. And in chapter 17, uh, the, the whore who rides the beast is adorned with scarlet and with uh, gold and with pearls, yeah? I got that right, haven't I? Okay, and then that's expanded in chapter 18 because you get, again, a mention of pearls. And then you get this threefold woe. But the key thing about mentions of Babylon is that it's repeatedly referred to as the great city. Okay? It's the great city which rules the whole earth. And the kings of the earth have become drunk on the, what's the exact phrase? The wine, wine of, of the, the wine of the, the Pornea, yeah, okay. Now, you've got some complicated references there in terms of Old Testament. So I think Peter Leihart and others would say, okay, while you're picking up the adultery language about the, about, um, the people of Israel, but you're not just. I mean, the adultery language in the Old Testament is multifaceted. Of course, the focus of much of the Old Testament is on the life of Israel. So you might say that's not surprising. I think Revelation is constantly opening up a very particular vision in the Old Testament and it's turning it global. The best example of that is Revelation 7's use of Ezekiel Eight, okay. So in Ezekiel, Ezekiel eight and eight and nine, eight nine, Ezekiel eight. Both, I think. Okay. So in Ezekiel eight, you've got the people in the land under judgment, and you've got a faithful remnant saved by the angel going through the city and marking them with the towel, right? In Revelation seven, that's opened up. So the mainly pe- mainly nine, mainly nine, no, mainly nine, isn't it? Yeah. In Revelation 7, you have that opened up to be cosmic or global. So the people of the land, well, the land is uh, aretz in Hebrew and it's gay in Greek. But both those words also mean the earth. So Revelation uses the ambiguity of the term to expand it. So now you've got the people of the earth who are under judgment and the faithful remnant in Jerusalem now become the faithful remnant, that is the Jesus followers, who are the inhabitants already of Zion. Because on, that's what we see on 14, 144,000 are on in, Zion, in spiritual Zion. You and I are inhabitants of heaven already. So do you see the way that John is using the puns and the, the ambiguity of the language and his theological vision? He's reading the Old Testament Christologically. So he, he's ex- constantly expanding that. Do you see? Sorry, that's just a... Okay, hang on. I, because you made an interesting comment there, yeah. which I hadn't thought about. Okay. And you're probably, I'm sure, going to say you didn't read my commentary properly. So yeah, let's on, just no, get no, that no, out of no, the okay, way okay, now. Yeah, um, which is almost certainly true. granted. But... The 144,000, yeah. so obviously I believe we are inhabitants of Zion now. Yeah, yeah. But are you saying, you sound like you're saying slightly more than that. Are you saying that the use of the 144,000, either in Revelation 7 or in Revelation 14 or both, both the refers same. to not just mar- the martyred Christians, no. but to Christians who are alive today? No. So, the re- so you would say... So yeah, those... so I disagree with Peter. I think his reading of Revelation 7 is completely No, wrong. so do I yeah. on Revelation 7. But Revelation 14, to me, is that's, that's the interesting thing. You, that's the kind of, oh, gosh, I hadn't thought about that. So you're saying that Revelation 14, yeah. the, redeemed, the Lamb and the redeemed, 144,000, yeah. yeah. you're saying 
those who have been redeemed from the earth, yeah. it's these who haven't decided themselves with women. Yeah. You're saying that's got nothing to do with whether people have already died. No, that's, that's us. That's us now. That's us. Because, because okay. we are, in principle, yeah. all martyrs. We're all... We're, we're, okay. because that's good. I because, like in, in, because Jesus says, Mark 8, 34, if anyone wants to come after me, they must follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. You, you, you have... Or let's do it, Pauline. You have died in Christ. Yeah, yeah. All right? I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, Philippians 3. Galatians. So in that sense... Okay? That's so you really, see, you no, see that's, I, I just think Revelation is just the same as Paul. Yeah, it's just the same yeah. as the Gospels. No, and I do as well. But yeah. I, I hadn't seen that about being alive. So yeah, do you yeah. then think... Because Revelation 12, right? They have won the victory by the blood yeah. of the Lamb and the yeah. word of their testimony yes. and their maturia. No, I, I, so I'm agreeing with all of that. Yeah. But I think the thing that I... I'm going, oh, okay. Yeah. Is the 144,000 in chapter 14 yeah. refers to not just those who've already died, no. Um, no. but to and those who are alive. But So do you think the harvest of the earth, yeah. A, has already, you effectively, are you, are you saying we're realized eschatology on that as well? Or are you saying that's referring to a different kind of... No, no, the, 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 the harvest is, is eschatological. Okay. It's the end times harvest. And again, I, I take a, probably a slightly minority view. I think that the two harvests are, are linked. And uh, this is something also that other people haven't spotted yet. Uh, you count the angels. Okay? What, what are the angels doing in Revelation? Oh, there's another angel. Oh, he's gone. Oh, here's a mighty angel. He has one foot on the land, one foot in the sea. His pillars, his legs are like pillars of fire. He is shrouded in a cloud and a rainbow. And he never appears again. What? John, come on, you're kidding me. The biggest cosmic angel everyone's ever seen, and he doesn't even come on again? What are you doing with him? Oh, another angel comes on. Oh, a great angel. You get in chapter 18. A mighty angel speaks with a voice that everyone can hear in heaven and earth. I mean, these angels, he's just, he's shredding angels. He just, they come on, they go off, they just, you know. Why? Because the double motif in chapter 19 and chapter 21 where John falls down and worships him, do not worship me, I am the servant like you. So you've got the radical creator creation divide and the angels are on the same side as us they are also servants of god they are also holy ones like we are okay we're, we're just like them oh what did jesus say they will be like the angels okay fair enough thank you jesus um giving us a little interpretive key there but the angels function as markers one of the things is is, is to john saying to his people do not worship angels they do not matter all they do is they function as narrative plot markers in revelation okay and in the uh, in the double judgment scene in chapter 14, three angels introduce the, the grain harvest and three angels introduce the, the, um, the grape harvest. Again, which I don't think many other commentators have spotted. And that functions literally to connect the two things together. So the sorry. grain harvest sorry, is the harvest of the faithful. Hello. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Good save. So the, so, so the grain harvest and the so grain hang on, harvest. Three, three oh, angels in the grain. Yeah. I'm, I'm finding your, your, your thread here yeah. a little tricky to follow. Okay. I may not be the only one. Okay. I don't know. But the, so, no, so that, about the angels, so, that was just an aside. So, oh, no, I know it was an aside. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. why I'm finding it difficult. It's like, I feel like, you know <laughs> when people Wilson, open up multiple up. brackets and there's about yeah, 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 four yeah, yeah, brackets yeah, yeah, at once. Yeah, 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 so you go, yeah. I'm trying to forget, the, I'm trying to remember the main clause. You asked so, me whether the whether the I know I know what I said. <laughs> That's not been unclear to me at all. I'm saying I don't understand why what you're saying is directly relevant to it. Oh, um, you so just I asked me saying, the question. Is I that... was saying the, so the 144,000 redeemed chapter 14 yeah. are people who are alive now as well as dead. Okay, I like that idea. Okay, okay. I'll go. I'll go think about that. Yeah. 
And I said, do Revelation you think that the doesn't make heart... that much distinction between those who are alive and dead. Right. But as, you... as does the Church of England. But it, but it does... <laughs> okay. We've got, we got this thing called the communion of saints, you see. But it, but it does... <laughs> Let's not go there. Um, we're going to pray for our dead. Uh, okay. So, but the... the d- but the, yeah, redeem, the redemption yeah. of the, the harvest of the earth yeah. at the end of chapter 14, yeah. Yeah. you see that as yeah. referring to effectively a future event yes. that we have not yet experienced. Yes. And I'm yes. wanting to check, therefore, effectively, you yeah, see yeah. the two the groups of the start and the end of chapter 14 as yeah. being different groups of people at different, or the same group of people, but at totally different time frames, right? Yeah, but you see... But, but and then you started talking about angels and I got lost as to why... Yeah, no, relevant. it is. Okay, but the, the, the issue again here is that Revelation is constant, constantly proleptic and analeptic. So the 144,000, that's connecting you back to chapter 7. But notice in chapter 7, the 144,000 he hears, and then he turns to see, and he sees the uncountable number from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In other words, the carefully counted Jewish people of God are exactly the same as the uncountable Gentile people of God. Because, as Paul says, we are Israel. Galatians 6, which verse is it, 14? Greet the Israel of God. Okay, he wasn't just talking to the Jews. We are the Israel of God. We've been grafted in. Okay, so these are the same thing. Um, but notice that part of the description of the uncountable multitude looks as though they're dead. These are the ones who wash their blood. They are constantly before the throne. And, you know, and again, you get the anticipate, the language of Revelation 21, God will be with them and wipe every tear from their eyes. So you're constantly getting the stitching is connecting backwards and forwards. Right. And the same is happening in chapter 14. Okay, so if I, I'm going to use my metaphor of brackets, right, and bring yeah. us back to the question I... Started at the beginning. Yeah. This, we went in at 40. So you have your, your beast making. Uh, this will be my last yeah, yeah. question, and then I'll open it up for us. We're going to need to finish this session at 11. Ooh. So we haven't, it's, we haven't got one. long, okay. but that's what I'm, you know, yeah, 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 no, so I'm trying sure. to keep us on message. Okay. Um, so Don't I'm presuming that all, of, questions, <laughs> that all of them. <laughs> you started talking about the communion of saints, which yeah. is arguably not, not got that much to do with it. But the, the beast makes war on the harlot. Yeah. But you think both of those are Rome in some way. Could you talk us through how that functions, Because given first, all that you've yeah, just said? Okay, because uh, clearly from a literary point of view, the harlot is contrasted with the bride in Revelation 21. Okay, because the, uh, there, there's actually specific verbal correspondences. So expensive jewels are on the harlot, expensive jewels, same word, uh, on, on, on the bride, uh, because the, the whole reason that the New Jerusalem is adorned with precious gems is because, I mean, I mean you know, Rome... Rome. Babylon has pearls. Oh, ha, ha. The New Jerusalem has got pearls so big you can drive a horse and carriage through it, right? Mm. That's where the pearly gates are. Yeah. They're not gates adorned with pearls. They are a single pearl. Yeah. And the, the, the hole through which you drill a pearl to get the thread through, that's how we get into the New Jerusalem. That's big enough to walk through, okay? So, Yabu Babylon, you know? Pathetic. Um, but, re- again, the language of the judgment in 17 is connected with the language of judgment in 18. I can't think of any reason why you'd think that Babylon in 18 is, is not Rome because there are so many very specific allusions. First of all, you've got the kings of the earth who are, I think almost every commentator says the kings of the earth are the client kings of the, uh, of the countries that Rome has conquered. Secondly, you've then got the um, merchants and then you've got the seafarers, okay? So the merchants are mourning because Babylon the Great has made every tradesperson wealthy. Jerusalem did that? You're kidding me? Rome did that. Rome conquered North Africa just to harvest all the grain to feed Rome bread. You know, that's all the grain of North Africa, which was then lush and fertile, that all went to feed Rome. That's why they conquered it. And again, the emphasis on jewels. The reason why, why uh, Caesar and then uh, Claudius came to Britain was to, was to conquer Welsh gold and, and um, uh, mine tin in Cornwall. 
So, uh, and, and they conquered Spain with sl- and slavery to get mine the silver there. So, so slavery... I must admit, I did not expect the word Cornwall to feature in your answer. There you go. I, I, okay, I, I, but this is the fun. And then you get the merchants, the sea merchants, okay? Rome was built on mercantile sea trade. So if you just do a bit of homework, look up Ostia and then look up Pontus. Rome was so dependent on trade that they built a massive artificial port four kilometres north, which has only recently been excavated. It's a hexagonal shape. It's enormous. And they built a canal parallel from Pontus, parallel to the Tiber, all the way to Rome. They had a motorway going. Ships came down the Tiber to come out to sea. Ships sailed back up this artificial canal, which I only discovered five years ago. And I mentioned that in my commentary about the technology for ground-penetrating radar and that kind of stuff. Okay, So this matches exactly. And the, the list of 28 cargoes in, in, in that, uh, what the, what the merchants mourn their loss, 28, which is 4 times 7, so it's the complete round of, over all the world. The, the list matches exactly the kinds of things you'd have traded, the luxuries in Rome. The word for carriage there is the technical term for a four-wheel carriage that the wealthy of Rome used. So there are just massive, massive, I think, really irrefutable uh, um, contextual connections with, with Rome. Now, so, the, so we go back to the beast making war on the harlot and yeah, setting and the her on fire. Yeah, the beast making war on the harlot is simply you, the fact what, that... Because I think, as I say, I think Rome, yeah. chapter 18 yeah. is the bit that would, you'd go, if I was trying to make the case it's Rome, I'd go there. Yeah. Chapter 17, if I was trying but to make the But it's not just you go there. That cannot be Jerusalem. It just doesn't fit anything that we know of first century Jerusalem well, at all. Okay. okay. Uh, we don't have time. Wait. <laughs> We will get into this later. I'm okay, sure. fine. But 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 I, I want to know how. That, they, but the, the so for me. But so the question then about the narrative because I yeah. think in some ways we could you can go back and forth on the on the yeah, two yeah, sure. identities of that, it. But I'm trying to understand text, what but, what happens in your reading when the the beast makes war and devours the the harlot and then burns her with fire. What do you okay. think that's referring to? Uh, evil is self-destructive. Okay. All right? You see that everywhere. The man possessed by, de- by the legion of demons, he's destroying himself. He's cutting his body. He's, cutting him, he's, de- he's, he's, he's making himself shameful by stripping his clothes off. That's the significance of it. He's cut himself off from community. Evil is destructive, and evil is self-destructive as well. And I'd say that is a part of the theology of evil, which is that the, the whore rides the beast. So Rome is not comfortable. It's not a coherent system. It is a self-destructive system. What happened in 69? The empire nearly collapsed. Why? Because the power structures created, always created in human empires, create rivalry, which leads to self-destruction. The empire, I mean, I think contemporary Roman writers thought the empire would come to an end in 69 Mm. with the Civil War. Uh, And uh, I, I think... Most historians would say, or they'd look back and say, certainly the perception in amongst Roman writers is that, is that the, the final, I suppose the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire was uh, the sacking of Rome by the Visigoths in 410. And I would say, well, that, that actually came from internal weaknesses, yeah. uh, internal self-destruction. And I think Re- Rome, Revelation is sitting exactly in that. The harder text is the one in Revelation 11, yes. because the great city is where our Lord was crucified. And that, that is the one I would say pushes you towards Jerusalem. I would simply say that is drawing on the tradition of saying, actually, Jesus was crucified in as much as the, Rome, the, the Jewish leaders compromised and handed over power to Rome. Because uh, in Jesus, when Pilate confronts the Jewish leaders and says, you know, do you want your king? Uh, this is in uh, John 9. Do you want your king crucified? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And John is very clear. That they're parodying part of Jewish prayers where they say, we have no king but God. So again, the Johannine tradition is saying the Jewish leaders have compromised themselves by actually buying into the cult of Caesar. And so, and, and, and physically, Jesus was crucified by Rome, not by the Jews. Okay, but not in the great city. But anyway, yeah. We, 
Well, he was in the, under the power of the great city. He was, he was metaphorically in the great city. Okay, what questions would you... We've got time probably, literally, for you hear... Yeah, you hear the speedy and speaks. You'll get good value for money if you do ask. Um, but we've got probably only got time for a couple of questions. Um, Phil. Yeah, I would say that's consonant with it, indeed, that's right. Um, when you allow yourself to the forces, the forces opposed to God, they ain't going to do you any favours. I don't want to get too political, <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, just, just to take a, an example, I'm not saying that Trump is the beast or anything, but, you know, someone like Donald Trump, who, is, who flails around destructively and bangs out tweets that destroy people, I mean, honestly, the tweets he sends out, it doesn't matter whether you're a friend or foe, you're going to get hit at some point. I mean, and in a sense, that's kind of a picture that Revelation uh, paints of, of what, what evil is like. Um, the text is really clear that all those things that are good are all really carefully ordered and structured, that words for them come a certain number of times. 144,000 is a nice number. It's a square times a cube. It's all nice and precise. Whenever Revelation talks about the forces of evil, those opposed to God, it is all chaotic. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the image in Revelation 9, the actual image of the locust, is, is based on, I, I think I'm convinced by the fact, this is something, again, I just had to do research for the commentary, is based on the chimera. The chimera is this weird, bizarre hybrid of all sorts yeah. of different things. It, yeah. is, it is horrible and fantastical, and, and, and it's ugly. And that's, that is how Revelation portrays the, the force of evil. Just, it's worth noting, though, that Revelation offers two almost contradictory Pictures there, so you, you, you quite rightly say that those marked out, those are, marked, are saved from destruction. And Revelation has two narratives. One is that if you're marked with the seal of God, you'll avoid trouble. But on the other hand, it says if you're marked with the seal of God, you will be trampled on by the beast in chapter 13. And, and he makes war on the people of God. So it's kind of both and. Yeah. But again, that, you find exactly that ambiguity in the yeah, rest of the New Testament. Yeah, that's true. One more. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, I, I would say yes, because I find it's quite hard to argue against the idea that each of the se series of sevens finishes with either the end or an anticipation of the end, sometimes more or less explicit. So 8 verse 1, you have silence in heaven for half an hour. At the end of the uh, trumpets, you have a long interlude in chapters 10 and 11, but then at the end of 11, you've got a very long eschatological anticipation. Uh, so, yeah, it is, although I think you just have to be careful. Some people sort of do that recapitulation thing as if it's chronological yes, rather yeah. than as if it's theological temporal. That's helpful. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that Revelation does, and again, I've only just done some research on this recently, is what, how Revelation describes time and space. It actually does some really interesting things. But again, it, it, it uses stuff that people don't often notice. For instance, I've only just recently really uh, been struck by the way that everyone says Revelation 11 and Revelation 12 have no connection whatsoever. They've got a very different style of language. Every commentator agrees Revelation 12.1 is the start of a new sort of chapter, well, it is a new chapter, but I mean, you know, it's a, <laughs> yes. it's a very big cut-off. It's the biggest break in the book because instead of saying, and I saw, and I saw, he's used this phrase, and a sign appeared in heaven, then a greater sign appeared in heaven. Completely disconnected. If it weren't for the fact that it's stapled together by this phrase, time, time, and half a times, 42 months, 1260 yeah. days, which only occurs in Revelation 11 and 12. Yeah. And it's as if he's got these two very different pieces of cloth 
put them next to each other. They look very different, very different texture, different colors, but he staples them together with this, this particular phrase. And that's, that, that phrase is absolutely crucial to Revelation's theological construal of time. Yeah. And actually, we made a similar comment, didn't we, about the open door at the end of the Laodicean letter and the open door at the start of uh, chapter four. Again, you've got a verbal again, connection. You know, a very clear break, but you immediately exactly. get them connected by the, by the yeah, text. Exactly. Um, mean, just, can I just make one final comment? Yeah, yeah, on and, then the, on, and we'll have coffee on the sure nature thing. of metaphor. Yes. Okay, so I think, I think you'll have had this experience, okay? But um, uh, here are the, the two most obvious features of the use or the reception of Revelation uh, as a text. One is, as I demonstrated when I came in, it's highly rhetorical. It's, it, it's, it's got a very high level of rhetorical impact. And people, who, this is why when someone says, I love Revelation, you either think they did a PhD or you go away and talk to somebody else, okay? Because <laughs> you think any minute now they're going to start shouting at me, all right? And the other thing people do is they say, somebody just messaged me this week saying, okay, people are now using Revelation to say, uh, this, it's, this, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen in Iran. Or no, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen in China. Okay, so so that's two, so one, it's rhetorical and, and, and used as a bit of a club. Two, it's about the present day. Okay, so it's describing events now. How do you explain that? Both of them are explained by the nature of Re- Revelation's language, and particularly its metaphorical language. And again, this is why, if you reach for, say, Beale's commentary, he clearly knows nothing about metaphor. He has, he has one paragraph... <laughs> on page 28 in his introduction, and he clearly copied that from a textbook on metaphor. Okay, so, and it doesn't have any effect at all in the way he reads the text, which is un- unfortunate, really. That's why I really don't... I'm so, don't read would it you like it. us to edit this out to go online? Because that could be libel. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very happy to talk to Greg about that. Anyway, it from you know. book. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> okay, but this is the key. If, if I say, oh, um... Uh, that pig, Andrew Wilson, is coming to... De- Sorry to be... You know, okay, just, it was always going to be me. It was always going to be you, yeah. That pig, Andrew Wilson, is coming to supper, okay? Uh, then, uh, oh, I say, first of all, I say, Andrew Wilson's like a pig, all right? So, and I don't... You might mean he's pink and has got ears, or you might mean he's really t- intelligent. Pigs are very intelligent and genial. Usually, the convention is being a pig means you're greedy, even though pigs aren't particularly greedy, okay? But that's how it is. So, you know very clearly who I'm talking about, and it's a, it's a simile. I might then say... Uh, that pig, Andrew Wilson, is coming for dinner. So I've just shifted the rhetorical register up a bit, okay? So I'm really identifying Andrew Wilson very strongly with a pig, right? The next stage is I say, that pig is coming to dinner, right? Now, I've done something very specific with the metaphor. I have made no reference to the subject. I've hidden the subject, Andrew Wilson, under the vehicle of the metaphor, a pig. And that does two things. Again, it takes the impact, rhetorical impact, up to the next level, Secondly, unless you are in the know, you wouldn't know who I'm referring to. Oh. What that means is the phrase as it is can be redeployed to talk about somebody else. So somebody else might say, yeah, that pig's coming to dinner here too. And they're not talking about Andrew Wilson, they're talking about somebody completely different. All right? So when you have a metaphor which hides the subject, it's called technically hypercatastatic metaphor. You've got to be a fancy word for it. Metaphor that hides the subject underneath, hypercatastasis puts it underneath, right? Then you get heightened rhetorical impact, but you also get transferability from one context to another. Every metaphor in Revelation is like that. We don't, you see, this is the, this is the confusion about Babylon. Okay, he doesn't mention Rome. 
He just talks about Babylon, that Babylon, which you might say, that historical destroyer of the people in the city of God, that pretender to imperial power over against the kingdom of God. Remember the word for empire and kingdom are the same in Greek. Basileus, Basilea, Basilea. Okay, so it heightens the rhetorical impact, but it leaves John open, it leaves the text open to be constantly redeployed because, again, you could say, ah, that Babylon, that great evil Babylon, that, you know, that whatever. Nowadays, and you simply transfer the text wholesale into your contemporary context. And, and, and this is the single biggest issue in the language of Revelation. Uh, and we do, it, it makes interpretive questions harder to resolve but it makes it a very powerful text. Yeah. Well, I think you'll agree that if that was literally 45 minutes and you've probably heard more words in the last 45 minutes than in the previous two days, I, I, I don't know. I think that's pretty amazing. Thank you so much, Ian. That was fantastic. <laughs> Wowzers. Is... It's very good to occasionally invite someone who knows what they're doing. Um, so thank you so much. We are going to take a, a short coffee break now. Um, for, we'll be 25 minutes and we'll start the final session at can 11.30. I, can, I, can I just point out something here you've put up here, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Okay. I see that on the right you've asked the question, whose blood? Yeah. And again, actually, I, I, um, uh, who wrote the Anchor Bible commentary? Kate Custer. Kate Custer, yeah. He argues that the blood is Jesus' own blood, so it's yeah. a non-violent text, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, I think that, the, the, again, there's verbal parallels with chapter 14, the trampling of the, the grapevine. Yeah. That's, that is not Jesus' blood. That's the blood of the nations because from its Old Testament antecedent. But you have commented, our blood has turned his clothes red. His blood has turned our clothes white. I have. Okay? So... I think that's really interesting because I think you're offering a key, an interpretive key to support that text. Because if you're saying our blood has turned oh, its clothes red. I haven't done, taught this page yet. But that, that comment was going to come before that comment. Yeah, but that and comment helps to answer of, it because I, I, think, it I think it does say that it's the blood of other people, not his own blood, on his robe. I agree. Yeah. Well, I know so. that. But I haven't taught that page yet. <laughs> Sorry. We do agree on some things. Let's have a coffee break. <laughs>